0: there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics
1: of this shape.
0: Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Hi,
2: Kathleen from the School of History, Philosophy and Religion.
0: Hi, I'm very excited to be here today.
1: Woohoo, we're excited to have you. Um Hi, Miriam. Hi. Sorry, we've got this all set up now, and I think we're, we're good to go. Um, so Kathleen is studying how Ava Milam, the uh, former dean of the School of home, home Economics at Oregon Agricultural College, OAC, which was OSU's previous name and the name at the time of Milam, actively sought ways to make the field of home economics a space occupied by women scientific. Kathleen argues that Milam did this through the use of what she calls unconventional laboratories, which we will definitely be getting into. It's super interesting at places such as the 1950, 1915 World's Fair in San Francisco and a practice house. But I think um, probably a lot of listeners may not even know what home economics is or like they've heard of it in middle school or if you're not from the United States, like Lisa, it's sort of a thing that's like this amorphous kind of class you take <laughs> <laughs> like who knows <laughs> so so Kathleen can you can you tell us what home economics is especially like in this context in the ma- the myeloma context
0: yeah absolutely so home economics a lot of people automatically think of the class that you know their grandmother took where she learned to sew a skirt or a pillow and then like how to make a cake but it really didn't start out as that home economics was developed as a scientific field during a time when women otherwise could not enter science in a higher education capacity. So this field really was based on applying scientific principles to the home to improve living of everyday people.
1: Okay, and so there was sort of this like Idea of making it kind of like scientific, and there was a unif—I know that like Dewey Decimal comes into this story somehow, right? So, <laughs> yes, like has that Dewey Decimal on so, the library system.
0: Melville Dewey actually <laughs> hosted this group of women at his lake house at Lake Placid, and they were led by Ellen Richards, who was a chemist from MIT. And they decided to develop this field of home economics. A few schools across the country had started doing domestic science, but there was really no nationalized field, no national goals. So this group of about 9, 10 women met and they decided we're going to create this field called home economics. And we're going to allow women to practice science in ways that they haven't really been able to do before.
2: Mm, And men kind of didn't feel threatened by women in home economics, I guess, because maybe they didn't see it as a science or it wasn't a science that they wanted to participate in. Right.
0: Exactly. This was very confined to the home, to areas that were women's spheres, So the kitchen, child rearing, sewing there was really no threat they weren't trying to like enter their physics and chemistry labs and trying to compete for jobs right so as as Miriam
2: said like to to people who maybe didn't grow up in the U.S. like home economics was kind of yeah I mean I'd heard about it it's where you know in middle school you like learn how to cook a dish or like (laughs) boil some water um so to me it was really interesting to when when we first met Um, for me to, I guess, discover that this is what your graduate research is on. And I I think it's super cool and super unique, and I can't wait to get into it. But let's start with how you got here. Like, how does one get to studying, (laughs) like, a mother of home economics, essentially?
0: Yeah, so uh, I am in the History and Philosophy of Science program here at Oregon State. Um, When I entered in last fall, I... Really knew I wanted to do something with women in science, but I wasn't totally sure what. I have an undergraduate degree in physics and history, so I definitely thought like maybe I would want to go into physics or women in physics. But then my advisor, who she wasn't my advisor at the time, but she suggested I look into home economics, and I was just like blown away. This was such a rich field with like such a rich history. And I just wanted to tell these stories. I personally love to cook, bake. So (laughs) so also it was something that really resonated with me. And 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 you've even cooked like
1: recipes from this time period. Well, once before, right? Once before. (laughs) Back
0: then, um, measurements weren't really a thing. That was a big part of home economics was starting to have standardized measurements like Mm -hmm. cups, teaspoons, tablespoons, and oven temperatures and Any specificity in recipes wasn't a thing. So after trying to make something once, I was like, I'm going to stick to 21st century cookbooks. (laughs) Kathleen,
2: I'm just going to say you undersold yourself there because you didn't just double major, you triple majored. That right. is
0: true. I, <laughs> I also had a third club. major yeah. <laughs> in political science, but that doesn't factor in as much to my current research. Okay, yet. but so that's how you, you decide. And
1: your, your advisor here at OSU is Marisa Chapp- Chappelle, right? Yes. And she's a professor in the history department or the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion. Yes, but she is. You obviously decided, you knew you were going to come here to study history and philosophy of science. But that's, how does like studying in undergrad, taking these three majors like get you? Where How do you get to that point?
0: Yeah, so in undergrad, I probably changed my major so many times. <laughs> but I knew that I loved, like, history and political science, but I also really loved the challenge of physics. I really, I thought they very much balanced each other out. You yeah. know, I could mm-hmm. write a paper in one of the two and then, like, go solve some equations in physics. <laughs> and the dream. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. dream. <laughs> but so my junior year, spring semester... I took a course in history of science, and I just kind of took it because the head of the history department was like, hey, you're a science major, like, maybe you'll find this interesting, and it was just like, whoa, this is what I'm supposed to do, like, this allows me to combine my three majors, because I knew I wanted to do that, I just wasn't sure how to, right, and then this was just like an epiphany, (laughs) Yeah. And and it's and it's interesting because OSU,
1: this is like a really specific program. It's not just history. It's history and philosophy of science. And there aren't I'm obviously in the same program as Kathleen. So I know that uh, seeking out these really specialized fields is really important to like be able to immerse yourself fully in this kind of niche but super awesome if i may say so myself absolutely yeah. yeah
2: listeners i'm sitting with like two of five people who do eight. this program yeah. something like that they, we're yeah. up
0: to eight now whoa
2: yeah. two of eight yeah it's a quarter of of the, of the <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> history of science students right here in the in the dj booth with me exactly
1: exactly <laughs> okay so um th- that's how you sort of got into this field and it seems like and we, we might talk about it later as well that your advisor has been really instrumental in kind of guiding you and helping you.
0: Oh, my God. Absolutely. I do not know what I would do without her. She has just pushed me to work so hard. And I am such like I am the best scholar I can be because of her.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great to have that kind of support for sure. And so she you kind of fell into this top, not fell into, but kind of like we talked about, you're going to be, or you do, you research Ava Milam. Yes. And I know Ch- Chappelle kind of helped you find this direction, but I probably most listeners may have heard of Mylum, sort of, at least a building, right? But they don't know who she is.
0: Yeah, so... um if you are from OSU, there's this gorgeous <laughs> building on the Memorial Union quad right across from Memorial Union. Personally, my favorite. Yes, yeah, so there's some beautiful trees that sort of surround it, right? Yes. So this building is called Milam Hall. And, you know. No one ever thinks, like, "Oh, who is this building named after?
2: It's true. Mm-hmm. i never I never think that for or any is building it named after a woman,
0: which is crazy right, is that right. Too? right. yeah, what man is it named right. after yeah. Right. <laughs> so um Milam Hall is named after Ava Milam Clark, who was the longtime dean of Home economics at Oregon State University. She essentially shaped this program into, one of the powerhouse college home economics programs in the country. It was the third largest. She set a lot of precedent, inspired other programs. Um, she really just worked to make home economics a serious scientific field, and especially in the West because that was that field was very concentrated in the Midwest and the East, but she's really the one who brought it out West. Mm.
2: And, and um, Milam's kind of path or arrival to OSU was... Is, is, is kind of phenomenal to talk about because yeah. she was hired as a result of this mass exodus of people leaving um, the school, right?
0: Yes, so in the spring of 1911 the dean of home economics Juliet Greer and most of her staff quit so, They're like, pre- I'm out of here. We're, done. <laughs> were. So college president uh, William Jasper Kerr kind of had a conundrum because he suddenly didn't have a dean of home economics or a lot of staff members. So he wrote a letter to a young Ava Milam who had just graduated that spring with her master's in domestic science and offered her a position as a professor of domestic science at Oregon State University. However... She unfortunately had already accepted a job with Iowa State College, which is now Iowa State University. (laughs) The plot thickens. (laughs) So initially she turned Kerr down. You know, she had a job. Right. Right. Why about to Oregon, like far away from her family and everything? So he wrote back saying, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Name your price. Wow. And she gave him this ridiculous sum of money. <laughs> like, oh, he's <laughs> never going to accept right. it. Like, I'm not going out there. Might as well just mess with him. And he accepted it and told her she needed to show up. So she quit Iowa State. That's crazy. And headed on a train out west. Wow.
1: And, and do, do we know, like, why, why Milam? Or did he just have this, like, feeling she's the one? She's going to be phenomenal in this field
0: we don't necessarily she came from university of chicago which has produced other leading home economists of that time like um marion talbot uh sophonie zabiza breckenridge um so that would be my best guess but we don't necessarily know i Mm. think he was in such a panic. He, he didn't know that anyway. this, like, random <laughs> master's graduate was then going to have this effect. Right. How he could just he? needed a teacher. Right. <laughs> and
2: and what's, so she so she arrives in 1911, right? Yeah. And then just six years later, she's made dean of the college, right?
0: She is. Kerr actually wanted her to become dean in 1915.
1: Oh, wow. interesting.
0: So he, when he hired Milam, he hired a new dean, Henrietta Calvin. Well... She was dean at another school, so there was a whole year that she was not at Oregon State, but was their dean. And then she um, only like <laughs> uh, uh, okay, it's crazy. She only lasted about a year or two, and then her was like, Milam, you got to be dean." She was like, "I cannot be dean. I have been a professor for three years." So it took two additional years of him begging her to accept the position as dean. Oh, so she didn't want to become dean. She sort of felt like unqualified? or do we She have did. A of- she felt she was way too young. No other woman was dean with just a master's degree. Every other dean of a major home economic school held a PhD, which Milam did not.
1: But we'll, I mean, we'll get to it, obviously, but she had this sort of mind for like her being a dean was was really beneficial for the school oh it absolutely
0: was and she remained
1: dean for 33 years so her entire career was at oac or or oregon yes her entire
0: academic career was at oac
1: wow and so now
2: that everyone knows a little more about who ava milam is this is just a small snippet but but you can place her now listeners um Kathleen, you're looking at three of for your for your master's um, research. You're looking at three of Milam's major accomplishments during her first decade at AO, OAC, AOC, o- o-
1: Oregon Agricultural o- College, OAC, o- 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 OAC, o-
2: o- o- a- a- <laughs> C- yeah. and 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 what you're arguing in your in your thesis is that Milam integrated science into home economics, or essentially made home economics a science through these unconventional um, laboratories that she created.
1: Yes. Right. And I just want to take one second and pause again, because women were not allowed to engage in science prior to this, right? And so this was kind of like a non-threatening field that women could be in. And Milam, through your research, is sort of actively seeking ways to kind of legitimize it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a few women like the Marie Curies who kind of slipped through the cracks. But... Overall, women were not permitted to pursue science at a high level.
2: Right. Those like, quote unquote, hard sciences. Yes. Right. Right. Right.
0: Okay. So let's talk about these
1: unconventional laboratories.
2: Yeah. People are probably like, what is an unconventional? Like, like, how can a laboratory be unconventional?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, you shall find out. Yes.
2: (laughs) Because the first one is called Tea Room.
1: Right. Plot yes. twist. Yeah, plot it's a tea room <laughs> and science and laboratory. Okay, so this is, we're at the 1915, there's a World's Fair in San Francisco, and it's 1915. Kathleen, take it away. All right. Take us there and take us yeah. away. <laughs>
0: All right, so it's 1915. The Panama Pacific International Exposition is occurring in San Francisco. This is to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Panama Canal, or... I don't think it's the 100th anniversary. Maybe the completion. The completion the... <laughs> the completion of the... At that point, yeah, I think completion. So, yeah. Um, so every state has the opportunity to have a building at the fair. The Oregon State Building. Beautiful. You know, they're putting in a lot of exhibits on trees and stuff. Uh-huh, lumber. And lumber. the Oregon Commission, which is the group that's responsible for running this building and representing Oregon, realizes... They need to, like, eat and stuff at this fair and, like, be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And these are all men. (laughs) Yeah, men gotta eat. Yeah, they gotta eat, yeah. There's (laughs) this small, unoccupied corner of the building. So they reached out to William Jasper Kerr, who was the president of OAC, and said, hey, um, can you, like, get your students to do something with this? So he then spoke with Henrietta Calvin, the dean of home economics at that time, about creating a tea room to serve these men. And Calvin saw it as an opportunity for students to practice the domestic science skills they learned in their curriculum in a real-world setting. But Calvin left almost immediately after that for a job in the federal government. Wow. So she, like, accepted this major thing and then... Said goodbye. (laughs) Yes. So then that got stuck with Ava Milam. Mm -hmm. And she absolutely embraced this. So she created this tea room, which consisted of a kitchen and a dining room where students for breakfast and dinner served the Oregon Commission. But then during lunch, they served the general public. So it was essentially like any other restaurant, but it wasn't a restaurant. It was a scientific laboratory where they showed advancements in scientific cookery and domestic science while also fulfilling this womanly need to feed people.
2: Right. So it's 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 essentially a restaurant where women, like you said, are fulfilling their, quote unquote, womanly duties um, (laughs) by feeding people. But they're also presenting a scientific exhibit in, um, I think you told us in in the pre-interview, three things, right? Scientific cookery, quantity cookery and sanitation.
0: Yes. So those were the three main goals of this Scientific cookery, that refers to applying science to the principles of cooking. So for example, during that period, that was adding measurements so that recipes could easily be replicated. Quantity cookery kind of ties hand in hand with that. So that is making as much food as possible in the smallest amount of time. So for example, they were specifically making recipes that would fit as much into those specific ovens. In the kitchen, it's so like perfectly designed yes, recipes. Perfectly designed recipes for that kitchen, and then sanitation essentially refers to keeping the kitchen clean. Um, that was not necessarily a thing. Germ theory wasn't totally understood back then, um, and also that was also just presenting themselves as clean. They wore these crisp white uniforms. Um, the Kitchen had large glass windows that allowed the guests to see right into whatever they were doing. So by doing that clean sanitation, that kind of elevated them as like holier, not holier than that, but as like representing the bounty of Oregon. Oregon's a clean, safe place. Mm, mm -hmm. This kitchen is this clean, safe space. Mm -hmm. Well, And
1: and the idea of white is definitely this like associated with being healthy right cuz it's yes. like, hospitals people are wearing the white gowns and
0: Yes there are actually multiple uh, newspaper articles that compared this kitchen to a surgical theater. Interesting.
1: Wow. And we actually have a photo. Kathleen was kind enough to share a photo with us which was courtesy of the Industrial Arts magazine which took photos of the time that's on the blog. So you can go to our website which is blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool images to see that right up front. And there was a big window, right? So this was like people were being able to see cooking happening up close.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's really what kind of showed that it wasn't just a restaurant because Mm -hmm. part of it was seeing this exhibit aspect Mm -hmm. of it, Mm -hmm. not just going and eating your lunch.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Whenever I talk about food... I start to get a little hungry, yeah. so so take <laughs>
0: us through the menu, Kathleen. What 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 were they serving? Yeah, so or what were the hits? Yeah, got... So the daily menu for lunch usually consisted of a salad, a cheese souffle. But souffles, they would like mm. if they had meat or fish left over from the last night, they would put that in too. Mm. Baked potatoes, Parker House rolls peppermint ice cream, and then coffee and tea. And
1: and Parker House rolls are, are what exactly?
0: It's a type of roll that was developed at the Parker House Hotel in Boston. Oh, okay. And they were used specifically in the tea room because they were folded on top of each other, so they took up less space in the oven. Oh, oh.
1: my gosh. That is... Like, everything is thought out. Like, when I think of soufflés, though, I, I'm not a chef, but when I think of a... <laughs> Let's just, pr- like, start there. <laughs> when I think of soufflés, I think of them as being extremely difficult to make. So, like, is there an aspect there of sort of showing off their prowess? Or why why soufflés? What's going on?
0: So soufflés were actually chosen because eggs essentially are the cheapest form of meat. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah. it's protein. much cheaper yeah, yeah. to have eggs than, say, like, meat or fish and because that was clever. expected in those meals. And
1: and I think you said that they could, like, swap in different ingredients, right, to, like, create variety?
0: Yes. So then that create variety if someone's coming back a few times a week, mm. they're not eating the exact same meal. So did Milam
1: – was this a concerted effort by her to, like, I want to create a showcase of the scientific prowess of my home economics students, and therefore I'm going to do this? Or were, did you think that this is –
0: Yeah, it absolutely was that. And it was also to provide them with training. These Mm. were all senior home economics majors. So for them to get this practical training before they would potentially go have a career in a similar field.
2: Mm. How long, this this might be kind of off topic, but how long is a World's Fair? How long does it go?
0: So this one lasted eight months. Whoa. Oh, (laughs) my. (laughs)
1: Wow. So that even like... Plays to this like scientific element of it that they are doing this for eight months.
0: Yes, but so obviously these are still seniors in college, they need to go to class. (laughs) Right, they came down to the fair for periods of six weeks at a time. So that also allowed almost 48 students to get this experience.
1: Wow, and this might play into it, but I, I feel like if they're talking, if you're talking about cost and eggs being cheap, uh, what did they make money? What happened?
0: Yeah, so Myla <laughs> made sure that the purpose of this was not to make money. Okay. It was to fulfill their womanly duties of feeding the Oregon Commission, and then the money they did make at luncheon then paid for all of the food for the Oregon Commission mm-hmm. and their travel expenses to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Okay. However— they did end up with an $1,000 surplus, ah. which in 1915
1: seems like a lot of money.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> and using that money, we get to Milam's second
1: unconventional laboratory, don't we? Right? We do. So there was Gosh, this... Milam is so awesome. Yeah, no, she's so cool. She's like, I'm going to do these awesome things. And let me show you how.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there was $1,000 after this tea room. World's Fair closes up. Everyone is back up in Corvallis. So, Milam, after she first put some money into a scholarship fund, but she decided to create a new laboratory. So, she applied to the Board of Regents to purchase uh, Governor James Withacomb's former house, which is adjacent to campus on Monroe at two, 2014 Monroe.
1: Okay. Okay. So, like 20th and Monroe? Yes. Ish.
0: Yes, where Rogers Hall is now.
2: Got it. Never heard of
1: it, never but okay, it, I did. believe we you. Either, <laughs> yeah. We
0: believe you, Catherine. Yeah, it, it's like an engineering <laughs> building or something, so obviously I'm uh, never going in there. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> me neither. Me neither. <laughs> but unfortunately,
2: this building, which we're about to talk about what it was for, doesn't exist anymore, right?
0: It does not. Bummer. Yeah.
2: Torn down in the... In
0: 1966.
1: <sighs> okay. Such a shame. Yeah, that is a shame. So, but... So she b- buys this house.
0: Yes, they buy and furnish this house and this became the practice house. huh? So groups of six home economics students, along with an instructor, lived in this house for a period of six weeks and they essentially applied everything they learned in their home economics curriculum up to that point and learned how to run a house by living in this laboratory. It seems like
1: really logical actually like a this is a good thing. To do? Did Milam just come up with
0: this idea, or how did she? She. Just... It seems like she came up with this idea. However, um, as Miriam and I both know, sometimes science pops up at the same time in other places. So, one other school had come up with a practice house at this time. So she could have gotten inspiration from that, or this could have been completely on her own. But this
1: becomes. As we will talk about, right, the most sort of famous example of a practice house. Or, or the house. one no, that people this is, that like build off of?
0: Uh, oh, yeah. People, yes, at the time. But in the historical record, um, most have actually focused on the practice houses at University of Wisconsin and Cornell University. Interesting. Oh, okay.
2: But just to give the, the, the university that did have the first one a shout out, that was University of Minnesota, right? Yes, that yeah. was
0: University of Minnesota. Good job, University yeah, of Minnesota. So U.M. Go first, I think.
2: Whoa! Bowling I can't believe gophers. you know that. Golden
1: <laughs> Gophers, gofers, I think. Uh, Go um, beeves. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to yeah, Beaver stuff. Okay, so there's these practice houses where women sit. Students. They, the students, right. Students are in this course. It's like a course they take, and a professor, someone lives there, right?
0: Like yes. full time. Yes.
2: Okay, and 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 the the goal is to learn how to run a household because yeah. the idea is once once you're done with college and you have your degree in, in domestic science or home economics that you then have all of the skills to run your own household. Yes.
0: To effectively run your own household.
1: Right. Um, and and oh, sorry, and taking, it's like, seems like it's actually very scientific in that it's taking this idea of home economics and uh, like quantifying it in a where you're going to have a course where you are going to be in a, a house doing these things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also applying ideas of scientific management, which was very big during the progressive era, so that you're managing this house as efficiently as possible to uh, improve mm-hmm. the lives of those living in it.
2: Right. And so, okay, so there were six students and an instructor, and they each of the six students had a specific role for each of the six weeks in the house. But I think before we can get to those roles, there's one more crucial aspect. So crucial. So, so crucial. And so, so uh, uh, different, interesting. interesting, not not of the current time, maybe. Um, yeah, an aspect that... Anyway, talk about this aspect. Okay, right. wow, that's,
0: that's a big buildup. So,
2: it so, deserves a big buildup. It really does.
0: So the practice house opened in 1916. It was great, really successful. Two years pass, and um, Milam gets an idea. So, not only was there the six students and the professor living in this house, there was also a practice baby. A what? A practice baby. (laughs) Uh,
1: Like a surely you mean a
2: doll or something? No.
0: (laughs) Oh, a live practice baby. A A flesh and blood infant lived in that house, and its primary caregivers were the six students living in the house. Like, these
2: are undergraduates, right?
1: Yes. So,
2: yeah. <laughs> Undergrads, go, go take care of a baby,
1: I, I guess. <laughs> right. And this, and this, so these, this, so how did, they, how did they get a baby? Where does a baby come from?
0: So in 1918, one of the former students from home economics had recently been widowed. So she came back to OAC to get her master's so that she could provide for her baby daughter. She didn't have any family in Corvallis, so she was left with a baby, but she can't bring her baby to class. Right, (laughs) Right. yeah, no. (laughs) So Milam had a light bulb idea. We can benefit both people, give this woman childcare, and have our students learn how to take care of a child. So that was baby Patsy. She was the first practice house baby, and she went and lived in the practice house while her mother went off to class. And these students learned how to take care of her.
2: And given that you know the the whole point, or you know Mila, yeah, Milam's idea behind all of this was to was for home economics to be a science. I bet this baby had like right a very scientifically structured day almost. Like, yeah.
0: oh, absolutely. So um, it was newspaper articles compared it to mathematics. There was a very strict sleeping schedule, strict eating schedule. This was following the idea of scientific motherhood, which was kind of becoming a thing in the progressive era. You couldn't rely on instinct alone anymore for caring for children. You needed to depend on the advice of scientists and doctors. So this was very scientific. Everything that the babies did was dictated by science.
1: And that also plays into this idea of making home economics scientific, that, like, you can't trust your instincts to, like, keep a house.
0: Absolutely. You can't. The best way to do something is through science.
2: And when when this starts happening, so when Milam, um, when there when there's a practice baby in the house, starting with baby Patsy in 1918, um, this kind of gets widespread attention. Right. I mean, I mean, they're they're starting to be called the baby professors as far as like Atlantic City. And people really like the idea of this.
0: Oh, they think it's hilarious. (laughs) Professors, the baby would be walked in a carriage once a day around campus. Professors would like drop everything to go like. Stowed on the baby. It was vi- viewed as a very novel thing. Like, oh, this here's these babies and they're like ruling college girls. And
1: But it's in a way that if we look at it in our today's lens, we may
0: think of it as interesting. But like back then, this was. Oh, this was the epitome of science. These are going to be the best babies ever. They're going to advance the human race like. No babies can be better. Right.
1: Because we're, we're raising it in the perfect. In the perfect scientific method. The perfect way. It could be no, but there could be no better way to do this.
0: Yeah. These are going to be the healthiest babies ever. They're going to be the best behaved because they've had this scientific mothering. Right, and this this kind of
2: plays a little um, into the concept of eugenics, right? Do you want to define that for listeners?
0: I'd never yeah. heard of yeah. it. I've never heard. Yeah, it. I yeah. Like, uh, unless you study home economics, you have no idea. What right. is. <laughs> so yeah, so if you're listening to this, you're thinking like, wow, these like better babies and stuff. That sounds like eugenics. So, eugenics was the original name of home economics, but it was changed because. Sounds like eugenics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so while eugenics is improving the race through breeding, euthenics is improving the race through sanitation and better homes.
2: Right, right. So, so the science of improving living conditions to increase well-being.
0: Yes.
1: So how does this play into, like, we, we kind of talked about it, but, like, after baby Patsy, this woman's the mother of baby Patsy, graduates, presumably, and they need more babies, or what, are there more babies? Yeah. Was it a (laughs) one-off? It's just like, we did this, it's great. Live your life, baby Patsy.
0: So the next three babies um, came from parents who felt that they couldn't adequately care for their children. So the next Mm. baby, Peter, his mother was significantly younger than his father, and it appears that she had some mental health issues that prevented her from caring for the baby. But, Mm. you know, at that time, they're not talking about mental health. Uh, right. Right. They're right. like, she's crazy and right. incapable. Hysteric.
2: Right. Right. Yes. And I, a man, cannot take care of this baby. Well, yeah, yeah. no,
1: without a mother. Yeah, not. no.
0: Yeah, so baby Peter was the second one, and he was brought there. And then the next two as well, it was like the mother was sick for one, the one child. So, you know, if you're sick in bed, you can't take care of a baby. Mm. And then the next one, the mother passed away, and mm. the father... Needed to go find a new wife and couldn't take his baby with him. Mm.
2: <laughs> but then the model shifts.
0: Yes. So then the model shifted, and they began taking in orphans instead.
1: Hmm. And, and they take so when they take in an orphan, the baby comes in at the beginning of the school year, and this is a yes. like a year long project. It's a
0: year long process. So they come in September or wherever whenever school starts, and they stay until June.
2: Okay. So. um Everyone's probably asking, okay, if these babies only stay a year, what then happens to, you know, an orphaned baby that was taken in, has lived in the practice house for a year, what happens next? Yeah,
0: Yeah, so these babies were adopted. There was a waiting list for Uh. parents who wanted to adopt these babies because, once again, these babies were viewed as being, like, the best, healthiest, well-behaved babies. Like, why do you want to get someone from an orphanage when you can get the best baby ever from the practice house right who
2: who has been living by a schedule and has been monitored its whole that the whole year that it's spent in the practice house and yeah scientific method has been applied to its upbringing essentially
1: right like we've we've created the perfect baby through euthetics. yeah this is ideal babies that's actually kind of a like if again if we look at this model back then it's kind of an elegant thing it seems like this is a way mutually beneficial for the baby for
0: yeah, the, there were the
1: students, the, all
0: winners the, in this in yeah. their minds. The students learned how to take care of a baby in a safe environment where they had, like, adults there right. if right, needed. Right. right,
1: a full-time instructor right. lived at the house it's with like, them. That was yeah. her home, right, this instructor. Is yeah. Like
0: where she lives. Uh, the baby got the best care that they could, and then parents got the best baby they could get.
1: Yeah, win-win. Yeah, win-win-win. win win, yeah, win, win, win. win, win. But yeah,
2: win. Maybe just yeah. two wins. Win. Lots of wins. wins. So what? many wins. So many wins. <laughs> so now, now that you've um, told us about about this this big big part of the practice house, what were the six roles of yeah. the students? All right.
0: So the six roles. Um, obviously, there was the child director. So that student, she literally was responsible for this baby. She took it on walks. She was responsible for feeding it, making sure that it followed this scientific schedule. Um, and then after that, there was the hostess manager. So she was responsible for welcoming any guests that came to the practice home because sometimes they would have like prominent travelers from other universities and such come and stay.
1: Or like you said, professors.
0: Or professors would stop by usually to see the baby. Right, because <laughs> they want to see a baby. But any entertaining was her responsibility. hmm and then there was the housekeeper. So she was responsible for keeping the house clean. So that factors in sanitation. There was the cook and assistant cook. They were responsible for using methods of scientific cookery to prepare meals both for everyone in the house, prepare these scientific meals for the baby. Mm-hmm. And anytime guests were over, uh-uh. they would have to prepare luncheons, dinners. Right. And then finally, there was the laundress, which. Pretty self-explanatory. She did the laundry. Well, yeah,
1: six people and a baby. Well, seven people and a baby. That's probably a lot of laundry. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and at that time, it's probably still like cloth diapers, right? Oh, right. oh absolutely. Yeah, these are cloth wow. diapers. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and so and so for six weeks, these six students are rotating through these roles, um, and it and it's an entire. It's a class, right? It's a whole course.
0: Yes, this is a house. So first, the class was called Practice House, mm-hmm. and then it was called Mothercraft. Mm. And then it was called home management.
1: So mothercraft really focusing on that idea mm. of the the practice baby.
0: Yes, but then that mothercraft class was moved up earlier so that they would actually take the class and learn all these ideas of scientific mothering before they got to the practice. Oh, house. that makes a lot of
1: sense. And this was a mandatory component.
0: This was a mandatory component. This was required for graduation to get your degree in
2: domestic science. Right. That was in the, home economics. Home economics. Sorry. Home sorry. alum's yes. degree was in domestic science. Yes. Okay. So. <laughs>
0: The School of Home Economics offered degrees in home economics, but you chose a track of domestic science or domestic art.
1: Oh, gotcha. Right. Okay. Kind of like a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science yeah. in today's sort of nomenclature. I feel wow. like the practice house, Like when I think about it, it really expands the idea of what I think home economics is. Like, I think of the Cook and the laundress as, like, my idea of home economics, but then it's sort of this expansion of it's hosting people and it's caring for a baby and it's doing, like, more things than that in this very rigid field.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is so much more than just going and taking a sewing class or a cooking class. There's the aspects of child-rearing and just continuing to perpetuate the race and have it be... Mm as efficient as possible. Mm. And
1: and the race here is is white.
0: A white, <laughs> right. A, race. a white rural protestant race. We're we're in Oregon. Yeah. yeah. No, it, <laughs> it we're, makes we're sense. We're in Oregon at the beginning of the 20th century, like everyone is native born protestant white and to an extent rural.
1: Right. And how long the how old are these babies?
0: So, these babies, I believe the oldest was 18 months.
1: Okay. Okay, so then you could have a baby be like a little over two years. A little over that. two years. Mm. And they could be younger, of course. They could be younger. But not older.
0: But not older. Because
1: then you can't imbue this euthenic.
0: You can, idea. but it's in a very different way. Like right. you're not doing it through sleeping, per se, because oh. they're going to be awake a lot more. Mm. You're going to be feeding mm. them different foods.
1: Mm. Right, and they're taught this is the, the way that they're taught.
0: Yeah. How how long did this it
1: started what in 19 Started in
0: 1918 18 19, with the babies, 18 right? 18
1: with the babies. The practice house 1916, right?
0: The practice yeah. house started in 1916, the babies started in 1918.
1: Okay, and then how long were these babies? Miriam, it's still ongoing. No.
0: First. I not a baby. Yeah, no, it, actually, it's a little shocking. It lasted until 1959.
1: Wow. wow. I think that that really is a testament to showcase like how important this scientific work was. That people were still wanting these kinds of babies. Like yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. But in 1959, um, social workers started thinking this is not exactly the best thing. A lot of it was based on attachment theory mm. because if a baby has like 56 mothers over the course of a year. They're not necessarily learning how to make human connections. So that was the big reason that it was pulled. But it's actually interesting. Milam, she wrote like this whole rant about how social workers were just ruining these babies' lives by taking them away, and they're never going to be as great as they were. And that's like 19 years or something after she wrote this. Nineteen sixty nine. She wrote that.
1: Wow. Right. So, it's coming out of retirement to support this. Yes. This idea of well, hers. Yeah. Essentially, like stand behind her. Yeah.
0: Her program. Her program. Yeah.
1: Exactly. She built this. Yeah. She
0: was going to fight for it. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. I mean, that she still supported it. And yeah. Didn't
0: yeah. See. And at that time, so there were three practice houses by the time it ended. So, oh, so each it, one had a baby. Three practice at at, at, at OAC. OAC. Whoa. What? So there was the Withacomb house, as I studied, and then they added the Kent house and the Covell house. Well, that makes sense if they have
1: expanding this program right. of home yeah. and it's a mandatory course. Right, right. And probably then, you know, more
2: and more students want to take right. the course or get the degree. There's so many parents on the waiting list who right. want to adopt a baby. Wow. That's crazy. Ava Milam. Yes, Ava, Ava Milam. I will never walk past Milam Hall the yeah. the same way and now, as I did before.
1: Right, and now it's it's the home of School of History, Philosophy, and Religion, and uh, Public Health, I think, is also there in the basement. I have no idea.
0: Kathleen! <laughs>
1: <laughs> How do you not know the history of the building?
0: <laughs> I, so what I do know about the building is that it's named after Milam. It had two different adi- additions put on. Mm. So it started as just that middle section that we see, and then the two wings were added. Right, gotcha. like, there's like so an the auditorium, middle, right? Yes, the but, auditorium no. was always there.
2: Okay, uh, but that middle section—that is like the building that Milam would walk into. Yes, every day of her career at OAC.
0: That and then the wow side, the east side mm-hmm. was added when she was Are, dean.
1: Aren't there still kind of relics of this in Milam in some of the classrooms, like sinks? when there shouldn't be a sink necessarily, or am I?
0: I have heard that all of those have gone away. Obviously, because there's the COVID, ghosts. I haven't <laughs> been able to explore the building as much as I would like. There is um, a plaque that dedicates the hall to her. And the, was it posthumously dedicated? Do you happen to know? Yes. So uh, this is a fun story.
2: <laughs> it's <laughs> all been dude, fun. kind it's, so, it's been so fun. Yeah.
0: So, um, in the 1960s, OSU, the Board of Regents, decided that they needed to start renaming these buildings because every building was just named after what was in it. Well, there were like three dairy buildings. (laughs) How do you know which dairy building to go to? (laughs) So they were like, okay, we're going to take proposals for naming places after people who mattered to the school. Mm. So by this point, Mylam is retired. She's doing home economics work in Syria and Iraq. Wow. Okay. As
1: you do? Right? For sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So her successor, Betty Hawthorne, is like, oh my gosh, this is great. We're going to name the home economics building after Milam and applies to the school to have that happen. Well, the one rule is the person has to be dead.
1: Uh huh. So she's
0: like, she's like, well, an exception needs to be made. No (laughs) one, no one has done more for this school than Ava Milam. So a compromise was made. They named the auditorium after Milam. Uh So it was still the home economics building, but Milam Auditorium. Gotcha. Well, unfortunately, in 1976, Milam passes away. Three days after her death, Betty Hawthorne sends a letter. Milam's dead. (laughs) It's time to name the building after her. The clock is ticking. (laughs) Wow. Like three days.
2: I, enough time to, to grieve, you it's know, a respectful grieving period. <laughs> and then we need
1: to name this building after Milam. Yeah, I like it. This actually gives to our sort of maybe our last section here, which is Milam seems like a super awesome lady and you are writing about her. I want to know how you did this research and also why is there stuff about her? Are you the only one that's doing research on her? Like what is going on?
0: Yeah, so I ended up on the topic of Milam. So I knew I wanted to do home economics, but we are in the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. And what?
2: We're... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I've done that joke too many times yeah, now on going. this show. It's not funny anymore.
0: <laughs> so for historians, a large challenge that has posed is that we are unable to travel to go to archives. Mm. Yeah. Right. So I knew that Milam's papers were all here. And so, by
1: papers you mean her everything she wrote, all everything of her, she
0: wrote and saved as uh, a dean and professor. Yes, as a dean. So I decided, okay, this is kind of a marriage of convenience, but let's do it. And I found an incredible woman.
2: Right. (laughs) Right, Because as an OSU student, you got access to the OSU archives, even during COVID times, Yes, even during
0: COVID. And I didn't have to travel because they're right here. So it made a lot of sense. Right. So I was able to access all of her papers in special collections here at OSU. And then also the College of Home Economics records, which were very helpful. Oh, is that,
1: what's, are the College of Home Economics records also housed at the Special Collections and Archives Research Center, also known as
0: SCARC? Also known as SCARC. (laughs) SCARC, yes. Yes, those are (laughs) also there, and that was really helpful for kind of, like, building what was going around, happening around Milam. So, like, because all of her papers were obviously very much from her point of view, whereas that one kind of gave more of like other people's opinions and that had like some cool memorabilia and stuff Mm. like Mm.
1: institutional knowledge yes Mm.
0: institutional knowledge and um
1: she wrote an autobiography but other than that no one has ever written about her in this kind of way
0: not really um Uh, i I found like one thing a book coming right (laughs) author Kathleen McHugh. Oh, yeah, uh, I don't coming. know about that. Like, <laughs> sure. But her autobiography, Adventures of a Home Economist, um, that's been really foundational in my research. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I mean, the stuff this woman does, like, as I said, she implemented home economics in Syria and Iraq. She implemented home I feel economics. like we just, like,
1: brushed over that. Yeah. yeah. That's, like, kind of crazy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's In her In retirement, so, she did this, right? Yes, that yeah. was in her retirement. It's more so she had such an amazing life that a master's thesis can only cover 10 years.
2: Right. That's how much she did. Right, right. I remember this. You wanted to actually do a longer period of her career, but But, her advisor was kind of like, we got to rein you in because Milam was phenomenal. And
0: yeah, and it worked out really well. So in 1921, she decided, okay, I'm Dean. I don't have a PhD. I feel very swamped. I need to learn more about Home Eye Comics. So she actually went to China, and okay. spent two years on sabbatical developing home economics programs in China.
1: Whoa. Whoa. Did, she, did she speak Mandarin? Or like...
0: No. No, 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 no. This is very much an age of imperialism. She was going in there and speaking English. Oh, <laughs> like I'm mm. going
1: to do this as a speaking English kind of person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I see. But still, that it's, I think it's important to remember that all that we've talked about, except for the Syria and Iraq stuff, happened within the first 10 years of yeah. a very long career.
0: Yeah. The first 10 years it's, of it's that's her career. just crazy.
2: As, yeah. As someone who walked into, I guess, this week thinking that home ec was like something that middle school kids in the in, you know, in the U.S. did to learn how to bake a cake. This is this has been so fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for teaching us about Milam and yeah, your research. I'm You're super welcome. excited. It's been,
1: yeah, it's been super,
0: super interesting. Thank yeah. you. Yeah,
2: we'll, we'll pre-order that book when it comes out. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I have
1: it.
0: You've you got, got some more time. You some more time. I, I only hit 10 years. I've got like 81 left. <laughs>
1: <laughs> First time. The, the pandemic will continue. You yes, yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't know.
2: We have unfortunately slowly reached the end of our time with you. Um, It's been such a pleasure. But before we leave, um, as you know, there are two traditions on our show. Um, The first is that we ask um, for you to give listeners or whomever whomever you choose a piece of advice. So, who is this piece of advice for, and what is it?
0: All right. So, my piece of advice is for everyone, and it's. Piece of advice that I'm like, anytime I have to g- give advice, it's always this: <laughs> so, don't be afraid to poop in public. To, to poop in public. To poop in public. Okay,
2: I'm, let's break this down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you mean poop in public?
0: Yeah. Do not go out on the quad and like take a dump. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> but I've just met so many like a people serial
1: out in public pooper. Yeah. No. Not no. What you're okay. Saying no.
0: Here. But I've met so many people who are like scared to go into a public restroom. Ah. and go to the bathroom. Like, you shouldn't be. You should just feel confident to be yourself. Get that poop out of you. And then move on with your life. If you wait till you get home, like, you're gonna miss out because you're like, oh, I gotta get home and go to the bathroom.
1: But it's like symbolic too, kind of. It's very
0: symbolic. But it's also
1: practical. But literal as well.
0: Yeah, because I, so many people, especially in college, were always like, Oh, I can't poop in a public bathroom.
2: You know, now that you mention that piece of advice, it's true. I know people who can't, who can't or won't do that. So, yeah, that's great advice. Or we'll
1: like scoop the single stall out, like the the private ones. What do you mean? Oh, oh, like the ones
2: where you walk into the door and you can lock the yeah, main the door. Yeah, gotcha. you one in there. Gotcha. But
1: that's just—it's <laughs> not quite it. That's quite, a, it's yeah. an improvement, you improvement. know, like they're getting
0: there. Same I think steps. that is
2: the most unique piece of advice I have heard yeah. as a as a host on this show. Thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, thank you. That, You're that. welcome. That was, that, that's memorable, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, and so our second tradition is we always have our um, guests come and give an outro song, which is a song that you want to... To outro and for whatever reason you feel compelled to have it for. So, what is your outro song, and do you have a? What's the story behind it? Why did you choose it? All right. Or you can just say you love it, and that's the right. There that could just yeah, be yeah, no pressure, no, no discussion necessary.
0: All right. So I have chosen "Say Amen" by Panic at the Disco. um We pl- I was in marching band all through college, and we played it my senior year, and that was just the one song that like, oh god, we probably played it hundreds of times, but every time. <laughs> Just everyone got so excited. You would play it with a smile on your face and just have so much fun. And so, because of that, it's really special to me and I'd like to end the show with
1: it. Awesome. Okay. So, so. say amen by Panic at the Disco.
2: Yeah. Here we go. Thanks so much, Kathleen. Yeah. This has been a whole lot of fun. Totally.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Traveling in packs so I can carry anymore. I'm waiting for somebody else to carry me. There's nothing that's there for me. My all the people I know who they used to be. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at kbvrid.
1: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamon. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.